This is a Journal of Animal Ecology podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to this Journal of Animal Ecology podcast. My name is Julie Sheard and today I'm speaking with Ian Thornhill from the School of Sciences at Bath Spa University. Welcome Ian. Good morning. So Ian, you're the lead author on the editorial for the British Ecological Society special issue on citizen science, which we're going to talk about today. But before we do, can you tell us what citizen science is? Yeah, sure. Citizen science, uh, it's not not actually a, an easy definition. There's quite a lot of uh, definitions out there. Um, the most sort of, I suppose, commonly occurring one would be essentially the involvement of members of the public in a scientific endeavour. But I think more recently, it's, it's, it's now expanding to try to consider how uh, a, a more of a a power balance between the citizen and the scientist. Um, and we use one definition which attempts to do this in, in the editorial, which is the work undertaken by civic educators and scientists together with citizen communities to advance science, foster a broad scientific mentality, and or encourage democratic engagement, which allows society to deal rationally with complex modern problems. So you can see how it's kind of developed into something which is quite uh, complex these days. Great, thank you. Yeah, I know there are quite a lot of definitions out there, but that sounds like a very good broad overview. You've worked a lot with citizen science yourself. When did you first become interested in citizen science? Yeah, um, so my, my PhD at uh, the University of Birmingham, um, which uh, quite a while ago now, 2009 2000 to 2013, was an urban study. I was going around all of Birmingham and the black country, going to ponds and lakes and sampling them. And as I was doing that, uh, I would quite often be having conversations with members of the public and uh, who were clearly very interested in their local uh, blue space, their local pond. So that kind of, I guess, set a bit of an interest, at least in uh, public engagement at that point. Um, and from there, I, I went to work in a, a council, um, Buckinghamshire County Council, and that was very much responding to public concerns. And I started to then get a bit familiar with citizen science and volunteer involvement, because I was also working alongside a biological record centre at the time. And so at that point, I was quite interested, I actually started taking part in a, a couple of citizen science projects at the time and then I went and worked um, for Earthwatch, uh, the Earthwatch Institute in Oxford and that is uh, one of the sort of leading institutions for citizen science so yeah kind of via via public engagement and via my own research kind of got into it that way I suppose. Cool what were the projects you were involved in? Uh, so the projects um, well initially I got involved in um, the Garden Birdwatch, which actually just so happens to be occurring this coming weekend um, over the uh, 29th, 30th and 31st January. So I took part in Garden Birdwatch for the RSPB and also British Trust for Ornithology have their own one as well. And also did some wetland wader surveys around Oxford with the RSPB. And then once I got into Earthwatch, the main project was one called Freshwater Watch. Um, which was a pretty global, um, well, it was a global project with uh, corporate partners, which has since evolved quite a lot to have different 
um, sub projects and so on. So um, that would be the main one. But um, I, I do use this uh, this app, smartphone app, which I highly recommend, iNaturalist, which um, is uh, provides a, a lot of functionality for all sorts of projects now. Yeah, that's a, a great app. Just from listening to your own sort of experience with citizen science, there's a lot of different projects out there and it's a field that's rapidly evolving. So what was the goal of uh, this special issue from the British Ecological Society on citizen science? What can readers expect to find in the issue here? Yeah, sure. So um, I wasn't actually involved in the setting out of the uh, the special feature. Um, so I'm going, I'm what I've been told. <laughs> However, the, the special feature was advertised to to consider how uh, citizen science has contributed to the advancement of our understanding of ecology. So I suppose the science part of citizen science. But I think one of the real emphases of the special feature was to try to understand the contribution of community-based perspectives to citizen science, that more the sort of people and nature. How, how does citizen science encourage people to connect with nature? So there was a sort of a dual purpose, the, the science and the, the citizen. Right. So if we start by focusing on the science part, a classic way volunteers are contributing is by reporting species observations, which scientists are then using these data to investigate patterns of species movements and distribution. And there are quite a few papers focusing on this, quite a few of them on birds, but can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing I'll just stress about the editorial, we've, we put papers into different categories that work for the editorial, but quite a number of them do touch upon various aspects that we cover in the editorial. But there are a number of papers that, that did look at distribution of, of species. So we have a couple which, as you mentioned, are very much focused on birds, and they look at what, you know, they really sort of typify what citizen science can enable you to do because they look over large areas, for example, looking at the associations between vegetation and, and the movement of birds, or maybe looking at the temporal population dynamics of North American, multiple North American bird species, um, 14. And one of the, the main sources of information there is um, the project eBird, which is probably one of the biggest citizen science endeavors that's out there. Also looking at habitat suitability and how the population structure might change over time. That's with um, a bird, the purple martin. And one of my personal favourites is, is in this sort of group of papers, which is from Northern Ireland, a um, paper by Twining et al., where they're, they're able to look at the distribution of the red squirrel, our native uh, squirrel species, and the grey squirrel. In relation to a predator of squirrel, the the, uh, the martin, the pine martin, and they show how as you get recovering populations of the pine martin, it's actually to the benefit of the red squirrel, and it's the grey squirrel which um, decreases in in population. I really like that that study, and that's obviously been allowed because there's been a nationwide effort through citizen science to look at squirrel and pine martin distributions. And then the final one to mention is from Estonia, looking at genetic differentiation in uh, primrose and and the influence of urbanisation upon that. Again, a large uh, citizen science study looking at the distribution of the different growth of primrose. Right. 
I mean, squirrels are, are great to look at. I can definitely see that as being an attractive citizen science project. But another thing you mentioned was these changes in populations through time. And a thing that's becoming increasingly important, especially given the biodiversity crisis, is long-term monitoring of species. And citizen science is often brought forward as a great tool for this. There are a few papers that deal with this too. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So one of the potentials, the big potentials of citizen science is is to support long-term monitoring. So yeah, there are a couple of studies that look into this. In truth, one of them actually goes much wider as well. But uh, we've got one study which is looking at forest birds, a 16-year study of of a forest board bird um, monitoring undertaken by volunteers. But I suppose the interest, the interesting part about this study is that they've resampled that data to try to understand what would be the, the minimum needed to look at robust trends over time. Because if you want to, obviously, you've got a limited amount of um, capacity in within the, the volunteer community, and you want to use that to best effect. So by looking at uh, how you might reduce that monitoring effort and assessing what trends you can pick out, that study made some recommendations based on that. Could you reduce the volunteer effort and still get the same answer um, and thus spread it out in a different way, spatially or temporally? So one study looks at, uh, at that and the monitoring effort needed to, uh, to get those trends. And the other one, which is rather more than long-term monitoring, but the thing that is potentially really valuable for long-term monitoring is that they engage um, farmers, more than 1,000 farmers in France to consider farming practices and the effect upon biodiversity. And the the interesting part for long-term monitoring here is that one of the principles would be the ideal principles in citizen science would be engaging those that are closest to the issue. And hence the the farmers here are the ones that are monitoring the biodiversity as well as carrying out the farming practices. So that's that's a really interesting one. And and they've been able to generate a relatively long-term data set. But I think more than anything, it emphasizes the the potential to get long-term data by engaging those that are closest to the action, as it were. And it sounds like citizen science, there's a lot of breadth in what citizen science can do. But as you mentioned, there might also be some trade-offs in when you design projects between the amount of data you can get and the volunteer retention, and you have to really think about how to design your projects. And one of the things that citizen science is often criticized for is that the data is of lesser quality or that citizen scientists can't produce uh, trustworthy data in the same way that scientists can. And this issue of quality assurance and control, that's really being taken up in the literature these days. And I think the majority of the papers in this special issue also deal with this idea. So what's the overall take-home message from these papers? Yeah, you've uh, kind of hit the nail on the head that it's about quality assurance and control. I remember um, one of the, the first conferences I went to presenting citizen science data was a conference that had where quite a lot of the audience was from uh, sort of decision maker community, local governments and, and national governments uh, in the States. And not for the first time, the very first question that was asked of me was, what's your quality assurance and control protocol? 
And it's that sort of question that constantly gets raised about citizen science, you know, how, how good is the data? And I think these, the collection that's in the special feature really demonstrates that we are absolutely increasingly able to reduce and manage error. And so the quality assurance is about preparation. It's about reducing the error in the, in the training or in the protocols prior to collection of that data. And then there's different things you can do to manage the error at the sort of back end and, and compensate where you know there are biases in the data. But I think the possibly one of the things that, that is indicative of having quite a large number of the papers that are in this sort of area is that we are still trying to improve this and it's it's still clearly an area of focus. So yeah, there's there's some some nice examples in here about some protocols that you can carry out to try to improve the, the data collection process. And then we've got several papers that deal with, uh, for example, compensating for different observation frequency, typically spatially. Um, so maybe as you're mo moving away from urban areas, the availability of volunteers is, is, is far less. So how do you compensate for that? Or if you've got charismatic species that are more commonly identified, such as birds or dragonflies, uh, mammals, what about everything else? How do you compensate for these biases? So there's some, some really good um, examples in there to do with yeah, uh, quality assurance and control. So there's hope and citizen scientists can produce reliable data. We just need to think about how we do it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, this, I mean, one of the things that we lay out in this editorial is that there's, there's an abundance of evidence that we can generate really good data from citizen science. And uh, one of the things I, I, we might come back to in terms of the future for citizen science, I think we still need to do some work to, to make our, the citizen science data accepted by the decision maker. We can do lots of research, and but how does that generate impact and how, how is it used by the, the people that are ultimately going to change policy or change management? And I think there's increasingly so, but yet more work that can be done in that area. Yeah, I think that's correct. Another thing that we've maybe been ignoring, but is now starting to become an increasing interest of researchers, because ecologists, we, we tend to focus on the ecological questions that we can answer using citizen science. And then maybe we go on to the data quality. But another aspect is the social side and the motivation of participants for getting involved in citizen science and this is something that we're also starting to think about, like, why do people spend their time getting involved in citizen science projects? Yeah. So the it's, it's that second part of the, the special feature, which we looked to get some input regarding the, the involvement of the community. So I'm, I'm not a social scientist, but if you're going to get involved in citizen science, you cannot avoid it. And it's absolutely necessary to, to think about the participants uh, in, in the design of the project and and really to co-create as as much as possible with the um, participants and there's a, there's a really big discussion about that where uh, which again we might might come back to so engaging with volunteers uh, as well as all the kind of practicalities around how to sustain your data collection get good quality data there's an ethical aspect to it all in terms of how you're going to use that data, um, how to ethically include volunteers so that they are contributing to a, 
a worthwhile endeavour that's of importance to them. And so there are some papers in this special feature, but perhaps one of the one of the limitations is we, we like more in this area really um, to to explore the experiences of the volunteer. But we do have some very strong contributions nonetheless. So we've had uh, got a systematic review that um, considered a wide range of papers, over a thousand papers regarding volunteer participation. And they used this systematic review to consider if there's the prospect of new, younger audiences that um, might be found through um, in the UK through the Nature Volunteers community. And that would be potentially to bring bring a different audience on board. And then there's uh, some exploration of how to co-create aspects of a project um, so that the opinions and experiences of the participant are better designed into into a project and that was in with the New Zealand Garden Bird Survey a huge response from their participants and they were able to refine their communication strategy which one of the key things about long-term engagement with citizen scientists is, 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 is always touted as being feedback so if you can give more immediate feedback appropriate feedback disseminate it in the right way then you, you're likely to have a better engagement. But I think one of the papers that really starts to tap into what the special feature was trying to get to was a study which looks at um, this idea of place attachment. And this is a far more kind of um, emotional ex- uh, exploration of why people would engage with a uh, citizen science or a community-based monitoring initiative um, so they look at a place attachment and they've identified a three-dimensional model of this to consider personal, community and natural environment um, motivations for engaging with a, with, a, with a project. And this is quite interesting because it's, it, it not only is about how the project or the participant fits within their, their network, their social network and the community that might drive them to be interested in taking part but it, these aspects may change over time so by engaging with a citizen science project one of those dimensions might be stronger than another so initially you might get involved because of personal reasons but as you get involved in the uh, an, an ecological or environmental study perhaps actually then your connection is more strongly felt through your understanding and, and connection with the environment and so on. And if we can understand this, perhaps there's more to be learned about sustained engagement and reasons why people would want to get involved. So, yeah, we've, we've got a, some contributions here to, to really start to understand um, participant motivations. One uh, further interesting finding here is one of the common issues that is found repeatedly in citizen science is this long tail of participation, and by which I mean you are typically got quite a relatively few participants that go on to contribute most of the data. So emphasis on data. Yet there is some suggestion in the in one of the papers that in terms of behavioural change and how that participation might affect upon lifestyles, so to maybe to then be more aware of the environment in day-to-day life, doesn't necessarily correlate to the amount of data contributed. So there, there's a a whole other area of impact that citizen science can have on conservation 
But that wouldn't be realized necessarily through data collection, but through behavioral change. And I think this is one of the really important areas that citizen science can contribute that's, again, worthy of further uh, exploration. This sort of comes together really nicely. If we have people participating in citizen science of personal reasons to begin with, and then they develop this place attachment and maybe get into more awareness of the condition of the environment that they're looking at and then go into policy and have an opinion of how their environment is managed in the future, that could possibly also skew them towards being these people who get involved in citizen science projects for a longer period of time. So if we can sort of move them along that gradient from volunteering once to being involved for multiple years and engaging actively in the community and in the management of the area that they're in, that sounds like a gold standard of citizen science. Or yeah, I think absolutely. I think there's 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 clearly value in understanding this. One one of the things that is uh, again going back to those ethical considerations is about power balances and the sort of more conventional approach, I suppose, of citizen science, which is changing, but was very much kind of here's the scientist and or here's the uh, the person with the PhD. We would like people to get involved and do this. And I think we're, we're really moving away from that to try and empower citizens to, to take the lead, really, to tell us what they would like to be researched or what matters to them, and then design projects accordingly. So it's, um, it's about understanding that as much as anything. So there are, there are the sort of practical components that we can learn about this, but we should be really you know, moving the uh, the angle at which we approach citizen science to be about motivations from the outset of the local communities rather than saying, hey, here's, here's something we think is important. Help us. Right. There is also a flip side to citizen science, though, because it's great. We're getting lots of volunteers and people are going into nature, but they may also be then increasingly disturbing nature especially in projects that maybe involve handling of species through mark recapture methods. And I think there's one paper that also goes into sort of this idea that maybe we should be thinking about legislation of citizen science projects and how to do citizen science in a way that is considerate of the species that we're studying. Yeah. So I think it's a sign of how the, the, the field of, is maturing, really, that it's quite reasonable that we should be having a discussion about whether there needs to be some form of regulation or policy or, you know, non-statutory regulation guidance to carrying out particularly uh, wildlife-focused and science and those that are a bit more hands-on, shall we say, or, in, or likely to interfere with wildlife more which isn't necessarily a, the mainstay of what citizen science does, but we should, it, it's about, the, about understanding really what could be the impacts and making sure that we are using this methodology, crudely, I must admit, um, but incorporating citizen science uh, in an ethical way alongside any other method that we might employ. So I think it's absolutely reasonable that, that there should be some thought about this and to consider what regulations are already out there that apply for example those there's obviously already protected species legislation and that should absolutely apply to anything that, that might disturb those protected species 
So looking at the landscape of regulation that's out there that could apply to citizen science and thinking about whether that's sufficient and whether the awareness of that is sufficient within these projects or if anything additional is needed. And so the, the authors of that paper have really given a very comprehensive and thoughtful overview of UK legislation, but it's a process which is applicable outside of the UK as well. And they've, they've raised some really valuable discussion points to think about what wildlife focuses and science is out there to assess the state of formal regulation and to consider what informal regulation or guidance might be needed to ensure that we're carrying out citizen science in a way that doesn't harm the environment and that contains those ethical considerations for the environment. Right. We've covered quite a few topics today, but if you had to pick like one thing, what do you think is needed to move the field of citizen science forward? One thing. Or maybe two. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks for allowing me a couple anyway. I think, I think there's, there's a lot of scope. Um, we need to do, keep doing the things that we are doing to refine uh, as this special feature looks at. Um, but I would say from my personal perspective, one of the, the real things that we need to explore is how can, how can we make um, the participants in citizen science more diverse and, and representative of the, the communities that are out there, really. So how can we engage better with disadvantaged communities? How can we use and utilise uh, citizen science in low-income nations that maybe don't have the same access to digital technologies that we do in, in somewhere like the UK? So really engaging with a more diverse community, I think, is probably the, the main area. But I would also add, secondarily to that, is this this idea of impact. Um, so how is citizen science really generating change in policy and management? I think there's there's still a lot of work, and a lot of work is ongoing, but a lot of work to be done in that area. Right, so more diversity and more connection to policymakers so that they feel comfortable using the data. Right, yeah, I'll go with that. Cool. So here towards the end, you've mentioned in the beginning you've participated in quite a few citizen science projects yourself. Do you have a favorite one? Or if you could design a citizen science project, what would that be? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give a fairly uh, wishy-washy answer to the second bit. So the, the ideal citizen science project is one that's uh, appropriately designed for wherever it's meant to be employed, and, and that would be great. So I'm not going to give us a sort of, I haven't got a specific topic in mind there, but I think it's about, yeah, it being appropriate. But in terms of things that I've been involved in, I really like iNaturalist as a as a lecturer. It's really helpful because it has um, a number of tools embedded in it that just enable people to uh, identify things around them, and uh, there's a community involved in it. So iNaturalist, though not specifically a citizen science project in itself, because it's a tool, I would say, I really like that. And I have to give a, a sort of a um, a mention of Freshwater Watch, which is the project I've been most involved in at Earthwatch and continue to be involved in, because um, I think we, you know, within Freshwater Watch, there's been some really good advances in the field, and also we've identified some challenges as well. Excellent. Right, that was all the questions I have for you today. So I just want to say thank you very much for talking with me, and have a nice day. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. <laughs>